Welcome to We See Jesus, Increment 143. And today we're going to consider and introduce a, another prevalent theme in Hebrews, which may be, in fact, the salient theme of this wonderful homily. And so let's take a moment of silent preparation. Father, we pray that you'll manifest your presence and the presence of your Son, the presence of the Spirit of grace through the message we're about to hear. May it bring consolation, may it bring comfort, may it bring restoration where necessary, may it convey the very life of our Lord Jesus Christ to many. We ask this in his name, amen. I ask the question, what's the big idea? The big idea in Hebrews is completion, as we've seen. There's a word group that pervades this entire homily having to do with that theme. It is the completion of the Son of God as a mediator between God and all of humankind. It's also about the completion of all of humankind and all of creation in the Son of God. Looked at from another angle, the big idea in Hebrews is mediation. Mediation is the big idea in the Gospel, in the New Testament, in the single master narrative that we call the Bible. And we may see down the road that mediation is also a premier issue in the justice of God. We're speaking specifically here of the mediation of Jesus between God and all of humankind, humanity as a whole. In 1 Timothy 2.5, this idea is summed up, and consequently 1 Timothy 2.5 sums up this magnificent truth by declaring, for there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Now traditionally, when we think of this declaration and when we think of Jesus as mediator, we note that a mediator has to be equal in some way to both parties in a mediation. And this is true in the case of Christ Jesus, the mediator, because he is equal to God and he is equal to all of humankind in that he is a man. Though this equality with humanity does not entail sinfulness, as we've learned in Hebrews 4.15, and as we note in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. The word mediator in 1 Timothy 2.5 is the Greek word mesites. That's M-E-S-I-T-E-S, A-T-E-S. -E -E 
M Epsilon S I T Eta S Mesites. So here's the word for mediator. The word is found seven times in the Bible. That is, within that single master narrative we call the scriptures. It appears once only in the Old Testament. And that's in Job 9.33. During Job's controversy with God, Job said, Would that there was a mediator for us and an investigator and one who could hear the case between us. Job longed for a mediator. He did not understand the suffering that had come suddenly upon him. And there was the tendency to put the blame on God, or to at least ask the question, why? And so Job longed for a mediator. He longed for the man Christ Jesus. Before saying this, Job complained to God like this. He said, for you are not a man like me with whom I could fairly contend and that we would agree to come together in court. In other words, this isn't fair. God answered this longing, however, for his son became a man like Job. His son became a mediator, and in him God and humankind came together in the court of the cross, where all judgment was drawn away from human beings onto the man Christ Jesus. And we've seen this already in John 12, 32. If I'm lifted up, I will draw all judgment and all humankind and really all creation to myself. He also said in John 9, 31, it's for a judgment that I came into this world. A result of that judgment is that many who think they see, and we can even understand this as, many who think they know what faith in God is are going to be struck blind by this. And many who are blind will be made to see. And so once again, God answered the longing of Job and in fact all of the Old Testament personages and people before the cross, a longing for a mediator. And so his son became a mediator, and in him, in Jesus, God and humankind came together in the court, which is the cross, where all judgment was drawn away from human beings onto the man, Christ Jesus, who is God and man in one person. Now, the word mesites is used six times in the New Testament. Twice in Galatians, I think that's significant because there are parallels we can draw between Galatians and Hebrews and between Paul and the author of Hebrews. 
So it's used twice in Galatians, and they're bunched together in 3.19 and 3.20. It's used once in 1 Timothy 2.5, as we just noted, where it's used in a kind of summary fashion. The Timothys and Titus tend to do that. They tend to have summations of doctrine, and 1 Timothy 2.5 is part of a summation of doctrine. It has to do with God being the Savior of all mankind, with God being one, and with Jesus being the one mediator between God and mankind who gave his life as a ransom for all, a testimony that is to be put forth in its own time. The time for that testimony is today. It's now. So we're talking about 1 Timothy 2, 3 through 6, really, but right in the middle of that is 2, 5, the mediatorship of Jesus Christ. Once again, it's used six times in the New Testament. And as we've seen, 3.19 and 3.20, once in 1 Timothy 2.5, and then three times in Hebrews. That's significant. Hebrews 8.6, Hebrews 9.15, Hebrews 12.24. In Galatians 3.19, the mediator is Moses. So Mesites refers to Moses. Moses was the mediator of the Sinaitic law, the law that came from Sinai or was given on Sinai. It involves a conditional covenant which was ordered through angels. Now, we already have seen that Jesus is superior to angels and that Jesus is superior to Moses. And as superior to Moses, he's superior as a mediator and the covenant of which he is the mediator is a superior covenant. In Galatians 3.20, the mediator is said not to be of use if there's just one person involved in a mediation. Paul then adds that God is one. In that same passage in Galatians 3.20, God is one is an echo of the famous Shema, Shema Israel. Shema meaning be attentive, listen up. So he adds that God is one as an echo of the Shema, which comes from Deuteronomy 6.4. Shema Yisrael, Yahweh Eloheinu, Yahweh Echad. Be attentive, Israel. Yahweh our God. Yahweh is one. This Shema re-echoes in 1 Timothy 2.5. There is one God, and there is one mediator between God and all of humanity is what is intended there as to sense. This only one mediator is the one who alone went into the second through the second curtain in the heavenly holy of holies, as we'll see. Obviously, his being a mediator is related to his being an archpriest. In Hebrews, Jesus is called the mediator of a better covenant, which has been legally enacted on better promises. This better covenant is called better or 
superior, in part because it's an unconditional covenant. It's based on the unilateral fidelity of God and of Jesus the mediator. It is not dependent on man's response. It is not, therefore, contingent or conditional. It's based upon one, God's fidelity and the unilateral fidelity of Jesus, the mediator. That's extremely important. These better promises are those which the author of Second Peter calls exceeding great and precious promises. And they are promises that have to do with nothing short of humanity's participation in the divine nature. That's again Second Peter 1.4. In Hebrews 9.15, Jesus is also called the mediator of a new covenant. This time, because of his death. Hearkening back all the way back to Hebrews 2.9. For the third time, Jesus is called the mediator of a new covenant in Hebrews 12.24. This time, Jesus as mediator appears between the phrase, the spirits of righteous people who've been made complete, and the phrase, the blood of sprinkling, which speaks better things than that of Abel. So it's important to note that the seven times the word mesites is strategically deployed in Scripture, three of those times are located in Hebrews, in this Hebrew homily, Hebrews homily. In Hebrews, the word becomes a big idea if not the big idea of the homily. Only in Hebrews is the word mediator or mesites connected with the word archierus or high priest. And so we have mesites and we have A-R-C-H-I-E-R-E-U-S. Archierus which means arch-priest, arch-priest, arch plus hierus. The mesites is connected with the word arch-priest, and the arch-priest is the great arch-priest after the order of or like Melchizedek, a high priest forever, a high priest es ton eona, for the age. Now, the only mediator between God and all of humanity must be considered not just as being equal to God and equal to humanity. That's kind of a basic understanding of his mediation. It should not just be equal to God and equal to humanity. In fact, that's almost basic theology or basic Christology. He must also be considered as being fully representative of God and fully representative of all of humanity. Jesus is fully representative of God because he is fully God. 
Jesus is fully representative of humanity because he is fully human. He is fully human in a way that I'm not yet fully human, for my full humanity will not be realized until bodily resurrection. Jesus is fully representative of God because he is fully of fully God. All the fullness of divinity, says the scripture, resides in him bodily. Colossians 2.9. Moreover, Jesus is fully representative of mankind and of humanity. The Bible is characteristically unapologetic, incidentally, in calling Jesus a man. The man, the man, Christ Jesus. This does not mean, however, that he is only representative of human beings of the male gender. It means that he is representative of all of humankind. Jesus, incidentally, this is kind of a side note, but interesting for our own times, Jesus identified as a man. In doing so, he identified as a human being. In fact, he identified as the son of man of Daniel fame in Daniel 7, 13 to 14. In doing so, he identified as a human being, the son of man, the representative human being. The man from future world. the Son of God, into whose image all of humanity is predestined to be conformed. Romans 8, 29 and 30. Now, what is not traditionally considered, not usually traditionally considered, in Jesus' mediation and in that doctrine of his mediation, is that Jesus represents all of humanity in his trust in God the Father and in his obedience to God. Consequently, all human beings without exception and through all of time are represented to God in Jesus. Just as in Jesus all of God is represented to all of humanity. For example, when Jesus said to God the Father, not my will, but yours be done, he was speaking in representation of all of humankind. His obedience was the obedience of all humanity. All of humanity obeyed God in him then. Now let me illustrate this a little further because it's a difficult doctrine, especially if you're so steeped in traditionalism that we're blinded by its bias. In Isaiah 8.17, which is cited in Hebrews 2.13, it is Jesus 
the representative of all human beings who says, I will put my trust in him. This is Jesus speaking. I will put my trust in God, in him, meaning his father. In Isaiah 8.18, cited in the same verse, Hebrews 2.13, Jesus says, here I am with the children God has given me. So he portrays himself as trusting in God with all the children that God has given him, with all of humankind. That's the Septuagint of Isaiah 8.18. This is Jesus saying, I will trust in him as the representative of the children whom God has given me. The children God has given to Jesus are his brethren, his siblings. His brethren, or his siblings, are all his siblings whom he has made to be like, or be made in the likeness of. He was made to be like all, not some, human beings. He is representative of all human beings in his trust in God. Trust that led to obedience. Obedience that led to his death. His death that led to his resurrection and his exaltation. The mediation of Jesus with regard to faith and faithfulness is articulated splendidly, and I'm just kind of amazed and astonished by this little book called The Mediation of Christ. And I do remember that it was a gift from my friend Eric Diamond years ago. The mediation of Jesus with regard to faith And faithfulness is articulated splendidly by Thomas F. Torrance, T-O-R-R-A-N-C-E, in his book entitled, aptly, The Mediation of Christ. Very small book. It's kind of like a meditation on the mediation of Christ. On the very subject of Jesus as our mediator with regard to faith and faithfulness, He writes this, and I'm going to quote part of a paragraph. Thus, Jesus steps into the actual situation where we are summoned to have faith in God. Now, right now, faith in God, I want you to refer in your mind to Hebrews 6.1. We're to leave or abandon faith in God. What? That's remarkable. Let me start to quote again. Let me start this quote of a partial paragraph again in Thomas Torrance. Thus, Jesus steps into the actual situation where we are summoned to have faith in God, to believe and trust in him. And he acts in our place and in our stead from within the depths of our unfaithfulness and provides us freely with a faithfulness in which we may share. He does that as a mediator between God and man. 
yet precisely as man united to us and taking our place at every point where we human beings act as human beings and are called to have faith in the Father, to believe in him and to trust him. That is to say, he concludes, if we think of belief, trust, or faith as forms of human activity before God, then we must think of Jesus Christ as believing, trusting, and having faith in God the Father on our behalf and in our place. Already, my mind leaps to conclusions here. You'll have to forgive me. If Jesus trusted, believed, and had faith in God the Father in behalf of us and in our place, then can it be said that Jesus believed in God for us? That it can it be said that his faith led to obedience for us? then how can it be said that you, by the human act of believing in him, are justified as Reformation doctrine is interpreted? I think we've got to go a little bit beyond the Reformation. This paragraph gives a depth of meaning to Hebrews 6.1. Now, just as I thought I was going into 6.4-8 in earnest, and again, when you look at Hebrews 6, 4 I don't want you to be confused by the many approaches we've had to it so far. We've approached it from many angles. And so we've been engaged in kind of a dialectic of many interpretations. But my aim is to go back to Hebrews 4, 6, 4 to 8 and bring the most enlightened for us and the most edifying interpretation of what is being highlighted there. And mediation is one of those things that's being highlighted in Hebrews 6, 4 to 8. Not loss of salvation. You'll find that's an impossibility. So this partial paragraph gives a depth of meaning to Hebrews 6, 1, in which the pastor urges his readers to abandon their former concept of faith in God. And the word in the Greek phrase is P-I-S-T-E, omega O, S, pistios, epi, meaning upon or in, in this case, epi, theon, theon, faith in God. How, how in the world can this writer be justified in telling us to abandon Faith in God. Well, we've already looked at how can he ask us to abandon the resurrection of the dead? We answered that question on the 4th of July. But how can he say to abandon the doctrine of eternal judgment? We answered that question also, not as fully as I want to answer it, but we answered that question also on Independence Day. So, What does he mean by abandoning faith in God? Now, he didn't mean that they are certainly, he certainly did not mean that they are to leave faith in God per se. What he meant was to leave behind the notion of faith in God as a merely human 
act rather than a participation of Jesus' faith in God and faithfulness in God or to God, which he executes for us. I'm going to say that again. The Hebrews author is not urging his readers to abandon their former or to abandon faith in God per se. He's just telling them to abandon their former concept of faith in God as an independent act, an independent human act by me trusting in God, and rather to adopt the concept of Jesus Christ trusting in God as me and for me, even in my unbelief even in my unfaithfulness. Now, what I'm about to say may come across as controversial, but it shouldn't be. It really shouldn't be. What is controversial today in terms of the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ should not be controversial at all. Objections to it should be controversial. Now, it may sound heretical, but it's not what I'm about to say. Here's what I'm about to say. People are not individually justified by their personal faith in Jesus. People are justified, and that means all people are justified, and we could even say, as inhabitants of future world, all people have been justified, by Jesus' representative trust in God and his obedience to the extent of death by crucifixion. Now, verses pop in my head when I talk about that, like Philippians 2.8 and Romans 5.19 and Hebrews 5.8 and Hebrews 10.5 through 10. The obedience of Jesus Christ, part of his fidelity. So that's at least in part what Jesus' mediation is about. We see Jesus, our mediator. Now, if that appears to be controversial, it's only because these statements go against the doctrine that emerged from the Reformation, not against the doctrine of the Scriptures. And if this doctrine sounds like heresy, it's only because ears that hear it as such are not accustomed to the truth, the whole truth, the mediation of Jesus, the truth that is incarnated in him, the truth that is embodied in him the truth that cannot be separated from him. Jesus referred to himself as, quote, a man who has told you the truth. He's talking to the Pharisees, to his opponents, and he says, you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth. I'm simply a man who has told you the truth in John eight forty. 
In today's parlance, Jesus is a cisgender person. That's C-I-S-G-E-N-D-E-R. And that simply means that he identified in his days of the flesh as having a gender that corresponds to the sex he had at birth. The Bible's very clear and very simply unapologetic that he was born as a son, a male heir of God. He spent his whole life identifying, oddly enough, as a cisgender man, a male. Don't hate him for that. In fact, he wasn't even proud of it. He had no pride related to it. He was just grateful. A body you have prepared for me, he said to his father. This means Jesus identified as having a gender that corresponded to the sex he had at birth as a male. He said to his opponents, but now you're trying to kill me. A man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Back then they sought to kill Jesus because he told them the truth that he heard from God. Today, they would seek to kill him because he claimed to be the son of man instead of saying son of a person or something like that. As such, he identified as man. In any case, Jesus fully represents all of God to all of humanity and all of humanity to all of God. In that sense, Jesus is all of God, and he is all of humanity in his completion as mediator. He is the salvation of God, Yeshua, Yahoshua. He is the salvation of all of humanity. He's not going to be that. He is that. Our mediator is our great archpriest who has offered one sacrifice forever for all human beings. His significance as the mediator between God and human beings is universal. His significance is universally salvific, saving. His death on the cross has universal salvific impact. That means redemptive impact, restorative impact, renewing impact. His resurrection from the dead is our resurrection. His exaltation is our exaltation. His destiny and future is our destiny and future. In the power of an indestructible human and divine life, Hebrews 7.16, he always lives to make intercession for us to save us absolutely. To save all absolutely. For all 
will be made alive in Christ. Hebrews 7.25 compared with 1 Corinthians 15.22. His faithful trust in God is our faithful trust in God. His obedience was enacted in mediation between God and all of us. His crucifixion, his death, was our crucifixion and our death. His burial, our burial. His resurrection, our resurrection. His life, our life. His faith and faithfulness, our faithfulness. I was crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, and yet not I. Christ lives in me in the life that I now live in the flesh. I live in the sphere of the faithfulness of the Son of God. I live because of his faithfulness. I live in participation with his faithfulness. I'm not justified by my own personal act of human faith in him, just as I am not justified by any human work I've ever done. He died. Our real life is hid with Christ in God. We may be judged by others and canceled by others and doxed and trolled and shamed by others for our life out here. But God sees our life as hid with Christ. Judge one another that way. Paul did. From now on, I don't see anyone after the flesh. For if anyone is in Christ, and all are, then there's a new creation. Now, this is almost an unfair hit right here, an unfair punch. I don't want to make it a sucker punch because I'm warning you. Here it comes. Tell me now that Hebrews 6, 4 to 8 talks about how people can lose their eternal salvation. Pow! On the basis of the mediation of Jesus Christ and on many more bases, it cannot be. We will hopefully have much more to say about Jesus as mediator in this series. And we'll also hopefully have a little closer look at Hebrews 6, 4 to 8. So far, exegesis of it has been rather messy as exegesis and exposition is until you distill it. We've already considered several angles of interpretation of Hebrews 6, 4 through 8. See how I led into it with through mediation? Picture mediation as a secret ingredient that we put into a batch of dough and stir in with all these other magnificent ingredients. Now, I intend to clarify that passage in a way that will prove to be most edifying. So, and, and so I want to close today by giving a hint, or tonight by giving a hint. To give a hint at this exegesis of Hebrews 6, 4 to 8, let's look at the first word in the Greek text of Hebrews 6, 4. I love it. It's A-D-U-N-A-T-O-N. Adunaton, the word is an emphatic position. It's first 
in the Greek position. It's first. And as first, it has an emphatic position. It simply means impossible! Exclamation point. The warning has to do with an impossibility, but for whom? That's the question. Adunaton is used by Jesus in Matthew 19.26. In answer to his disciples' question, who then can be saved? Matthew 19.25b. Jesus' reply was this. With men, this is adonaton, undoable, impossible. But with God, all things are possible. He uses a phrase here, P-A-N-T-A, panta, everything. Panta dunata. Panta dunata. Everything is possible, or all things are possible. Let that sink in for a second. It is remarkable how the word all, panta, is given in Jesus' answer to his disciples' question, who then can be saved? In his answer, the word all appears. Get down to simplicity. Who then can be saved? Jesus says, everybody. All. It's remarkable then how the word all is given in Jesus' answer to that, to who then can be saved. Jesus had said earlier to evoke the question, Jesus had said that it would be, quote, harder for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Matthew 19.24. Now that simply rules out any possibility of human salvation based on human action, including the human act of faith. Matthew 19.24. So his disciples, for a change were reasonable in asking, well, then who can be saved? They ask this while tacitly admitting that everyone is rich in something. In other words, they said, okay, that man's rich. I don't have the money he has, the land he has, the holdings he has, the stocks he has. I don't own Google. I don't own Facebook. I don't own Twitter. I don't have these kind of wealth, but everybody has some kind of wealth, even if it's a wealth of pride. So they were tacitly admitting in this question, who can be saved? Because everybody's rich somehow. When Jesus answered, he said, not. He didn't say, With God, this is possible, meaning with God, this is possible, that is to save this rich man. He didn't say that. As if to say, with God, saving a rich man is possible. No. Instead, Jesus said, with God, all things 
or everything is possible. This was to suggest that with God, it is possible to save all people, not just rich ones. Can you see Jesus? Can you hear him saying this? When Mark recorded this conversation, and he did, he deployed what we call the vivid historical present tense of the word. The New American Standard Bible captures this beautifully, and I think it even has a notation about that tense in the forward somewhere in the early pages before the scripture is recorded. The vivid historical present tense of the word lego. So it should be translated, Jesus says to them. You're supposed to imagine him saying it now because he is, because he is. With men, adunaton, impossible. But not with God, because all things are possible with God. Again, in Mark 10, 27, panta dunata paratotheo. You say, Jesus spoke that in Greek. No, he didn't. He spoke it in Aramaic, but it was translated into Greek, and we have the Greek text. The Greek text is panta dunata paratotheo. Nothing. Make that all things are possible with God. By the vivid historical present, we are allowed not only to see Jesus with the eyes of our heart, but to hear him say these words as if he is saying them now. In fact, he is saying them now. With God, all things are possible. Jesus is saying that now. With God, all things are possible. For these words are as real and as true now as they were in the first century and when they first emerged from the lips of Jesus in the days of his flesh. So right out of the gate in an exegesis of Hebrews 6, 4, we're being introduced to an impossibility that cannot be a divine impossibility. That which to men is an impossible mission became to God a doable one. In fact, one that he accomplished. By the divine mission of the Son and the divine mission of the Holy Spirit, not only did God propose to save a rich man, listen to this one, Isaiah 53, 9 says Jesus was with a rich man in his death. Go and learn about that. Think about what that means. What about the rich man in Hades? Yeah, Jesus was with the rich man in Hades in his death. So the rich man in Hades, as you like to think of him, was with Jesus in his resurrection. Isaiah 53, 9. So by the divine mission of the Son, God was proposing not to save a rich man. He did. But he proposed to save the world of humanity. 
according to John 3.17. And God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. 2 Corinthians 5.19, including a rich man. The grace of God has indeed appeared salvation for all men, that is, for all humankind, Titus 2.11. For God there is no impossible mission. That which would be an impossible mission to men is possible with God. It is not only impossible for men to save all of mankind, it is impossible for men to save a single rich man and for a rich man to save himself. For God, though, it is not only not impossible to save a rich man, it is not impossible for God to save all of humanity, all men and women and children in all the world from all the times of human history. In fact, and in reality, he has done this. In Jesus, God has done this. And when Jesus appears a second time, in Hebrews 9.28, he will bring this salvation to all who are waiting for him. And those who are waiting for him means all beings, including a rich man, even that rich guy that Christians want to leave in Hades in Luke 16. Given the truths we've contemplated today, we can no longer say it is impossible for God to save an unbelieving person. Think of that. Given the truths we've contemplated today, we can no longer say and have it be true, it is impossible for God to save an unbelieving person. <clears throat> I wonder if any preacher said this on, the, on his latest Sunday sermon. It is impossible for God to save an unbelieving person. How could it be when Jesus believes for every person? How can that be when the scripture explicitly says that God has imprisoned all human beings in unbelief, including you, preacher, who think it's impossible for God to save someone in unbelief? You know what? You who say you must be saved by faith in God may have the human act of faith in God, and you might even brag about it, but that doesn't save you and it doesn't justify you. You're saved by Jesus' faithfulness to God and justified by his fidelity and his saving death, his faithful death. You might even say that Hebrews 6, 4 to 8 tells your congregation they can lose their salvation when according to your same language, you don't even have that salvation because you brag in your faith in God. When it was the faithfulness of Jesus Christ to God that saved you. God has mercy on those in unbelief because in the words of T.F. Torrance, Jesus acts in our place and in our stead from within the depths of our 
unfaithfulness and provides us freely with a faithfulness in which we may share. Now, maybe you don't choose to share in his faithfulness because you want to brag about your faith. That doesn't stop you from being saved. It just keeps you out of the free state of soteria in this evil age. What am I doing? I'm doing an exegesis of of Hebrews 6.4. I already started it. Again, what am I doing? A theological exegesis of Hebrews 6.4, beginning with the acknowledgement of God's omnipotence, which means the impossibility of anyone's salvation not to be accomplished by God. It is impossible for God to lie. Hebrews 6.18 to 20. Numbers 23.19. Because this is against his essence of veracity and his act of faithfulness which he enacted in Jesus. Consequently, God is the Savior of all men through Jesus Christ our Lord, the one and only mediator between God and men. It is not impossible for God to save not only a rich man, but all human beings, because this is in accord with his essence and his act, which is omnipotent love. In fact, it is precisely according to God's essence and act of omnipotent, unrestricted, uncontingent, and unconditional love that he saves all men and all women and all children. He is the Savior of all people, no matter what or who they identify as. And even if they do not believe, he is their Savior. Because Jesus believed and exercised perfect fidelity for them. Amen. This is the end of increment 143, which we will title simply Pistios Epitheon.